Therefore, the word of God being set forth in Greek becometh hereby like a candle set upon a candlestick, which giveth light to all that are in the house, or like a proclamation sounded forth in the marketplace, which most men presently take knowledge of. And therefore that language was fittest to contain the scriptures, both for the first preachers of the gospel to appeal unto for witness, and for the learners also of those times to make search and trial by. The Preface to the King James Bible. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, and today we're going to talk about the Septuagint. Zelwyn, how are you? How is the weather in North Dakota? I'm doing great, Willie. Things are looking very nice out here today. It was raining this morning, which was always a blessing to have, and now the sun is shining and God is in his heaven, and I'm not really sure how you could be depressed on a day like today. So... <laughs> Well, it's not depressing here. It is oppressively hot, however. Um, you know, I uh, it is very hot, very humid, but you get a good tan by the end of it, I guess. The air conditioner decided to go out on the old Buick last week, just Oops. in time for this hot spell. But it being a good old car, I just stared at the compressor intently, and she fired back up and started working again. <laughs> so we're doing good. We've got mostly cool air now. In the Buick with Sabre, we're going to make it. It's going to be great. I thought you were going to tell me you, you stapled the compressor and that got it working again. Didn't even need to go that far. Now, it's a good thing, too, because not all of the windows work in the vehicle. <laughs> so we have to we have to are circulate they, air somehow. Are they electric? Or are they manual or what? They, they, it, it, it has electric power. Okay. So electric power windows. Fancy. Um, fancy. Oh, yeah. CD, CD and cassette. Better times, really better times, unironically. Right. You know, dual bench seats as it should be. I suppose you're going to tell me it's a manual now with like three on the tree or something. No, just, you know, it's, it's a Papaw car. So I got a, I got a shifter automatic on the column. <laughs> even, even, even have a, a, a trailer hitch on it because you never know. What are you going to pull with the car? I'm not really sure. I can pull anything with that car. A car can do anything. <laughs> I'll be like these guys around here who buy uh, these these like fifth wheels, but don't really have the the capability. Like the Ford Ranger is not going to be able to to handle my friend. Well, so. I mean, my Ford Ranger can handle my ten foot trailer, but even then, it's starting to strain. So. You gotta, you gotta do what you can with it. Right. You are listening to Car Talk here on a word fitly spoken. <laughs> anyway, so today is going to be a fun episode. Long one in the making. We're going to talk about the Septuagint. Long word. Some of our listeners will know what it means. Some won't. Zelwyn, why don't you tell the folks at home what the Septuagint is and why we are talking about it? Well, in a nutshell, the Septuagint is the old Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's called the Septuagint because Septuagint in Latin means 70. And the, of course, you have the legend of the, the 70 who translated the, the Septuagint and everything that goes with that. And so that's why it, it, it carries that name and it continues on today. Do you, I mean, do you want to talk about the legend at all? I mean... Do you think it's a legend? I mean, the King James boys don't think so. Uh, oh, fair enough. Okay, I mean, okay, it's 
shorthand for, yeah, I said the work of the 70, referring to a translation of the Pentateuch in the Greek right. produced in Alexandria in Egypt in the third century BC. And legend is it was actually 72 Jewish scholars who miraculously produced identical translations. That's the legendary part. Right. Well, I mean, the idea was is that you had one of the Ptolemy II who wanted, supposedly wanted a translation of the Old Testament because of all the Jews that were in Alexandria at the time, and that's why it was created. I mean, that's that's the way that the story goes. But what is definitely historical is that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, were first translated into Greek around the year 250 B.C., Mm-hmm. And everything after that was over the next couple of hundred years. Right. So by, by the time you get to a little bit before the time of Christ, the Old Testament has been entirely translated. Yeah. Into Greek. And so when you hear Septuagint today, it refers to the old, like you said, the old Greek translation of the entire Old Testament. Right. And the reason why this translation was being made was because by the time of Christ, actually before the time of Christ, Hebrew had become a forgotten language, mm-hmm. which I think is telling. But the the Jews, or you know, the, even even the believers in those times were no longer able to really read the Old Testament as it had been written, and so they needed to translate it into something that they could understand, which of course was Greek. You see this little bits of evidence from this from like Nehemiah thirteen where uh, they're complaining that the children of of these mixed marriages can't actually speak the language of Judah anymore. You know, they're speaking other languages. Uh, you see it in Esther as well, where the Jews are not coming back to the promised land. They're dwelling among the nations. And you see it especially in the book of Acts, to, uh, you know, chapter 2, talking at Pentecost, where the men who gather together at Pentecost say, you know, they're speaking in our language, you know, various, and it was various dialects of Greek, Aramaic, Latin, you know, Persian sort of things, anything except Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Septuagint was necessary. Do you want to add right. anything to that, Willie? Uh, no, other than to say, you know, the Septuagint is going to be really the foundational Old Testament text for much of the first Christians and much of the early church. Uh, There's really no way to get around that. Right. And so we'll get a little bit into the textual debate. Yeah, I don't want to spoil the whole episode there, but (laughs) other than to say it's it's a big deal. Now, what we come into, and I don't know if you want to get this into this now or, or later, but there are differing versions of the Septuagint. Right, right. Well, maybe maybe before we get to that, let's talk about why they translated into Greek. You know, why Greek and not some other language? Yeah, well, I mean, it's the it's the lingua franca of the day, the French language, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> uh, so it's the universal language of the day. Right. This is going to be the one that I mean. It, this is why I say it's providential because it's going to be because of the widespread. Uh, because of Alexander the Great, a lot of people speak Greek. Uh, and right. so Greek is the common language. It's the language of commerce and everything. So it is going to be able to reach a larger number of people than Hebrew would, as you said, right. or literally any other language at the time. Right. Well, even 
even something like Aramaic, which had been spoken largely throughout the Near East, uh, even by the Persians, that was being displaced by Greek as well. So yes. that even, even in those ancient areas where they would have spoken Aramaic, which is related to Hebrew, it was giving way to Greek. So I don't think it would be too far to say that Jesus himself would have spoken Greek. Right. And I mean, if you think about it, Greek persists in the Roman, well into the Roman Empire. I mean, it's a while right. before Latin supplants Greek. Right. Right. Well, and even even with that, too, Greek will eventually supplant Latin even within Rome. Yes. I mean, especially, you know, as we get further and further along, and especially as the east eastern half of the empire Correct. rises up to be the dominant force, Greek will eventually become the language of the Roman Empire. So it is but I'm saying even at the time of Julius Caesar, they are all right. still they are still, they're all Greek speakers too, right? Of of the higher classes, because you have to be. I mean, we we preserve Caesar because his Latin is so eloquent, but Greek is still the universal language by that point. Right. Yep. At that point. So to translate the Old Testament into Greek, not only is a beneficial thing for the Jews at the time. It is also, as you say, a providential thing for the entire world, yep. because now the whole world can come to know God. Right. I mean, that is, it's just it's it's a great thing. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I'll be talking about quite a bit, and you hear me talk about, is God's preservation of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that even in a translation, you can have the true Bible. You know, I'm always a little iffy when people want to do the caveat of, well, we believe the Bible is infallible in the original autographs. And I'm like, well, okay, good luck with that. I do believe there is a received text of Scripture that is inspired that we do have. But my problem is when people say that, I know what they mean, and of course I agree the original uh, autographs are inspired. I'm not saying that. It's just that is oftentimes a weasel word right? to be able to say, well, we really can't know. Right. And I think it's very right. important for us that not only does God inspire the word, but God also preserves the word and guards the word. And I think the Septuagint is an example of that. Sure, absolutely. Well, especially because the Septuagint itself, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, um, is something that we can refer to at times in order to help us to even understand the original Hebrew. Right? Mm -hmm. That yeah. sometimes where the Hebrew is unclear... You know, you can turn to the Greek and say, okay, well, that's that's what they were getting at. And you, yeah. can, you and can translate in that way. Providentially, the Septuagint is awfully more overtly Christological, whereas the Masoretic text, the later Hebrew text, will not be. And we can talk about that a little more down the line, but you can draw your own conclusions there. <laughs> uh, remember, there is a semi-legendary council that the Jews will hold that uh, actually curses the day the Septuagint was put together. Right, right. Maybe this would be a good time then to talk about the, the various versions of the Septuagint, because that's actually kind of related to that same issue. Because the Septuagint being a translation, it did undergo some revisions and stuff like that, both by Christians, but also by Jews, especially after the time of Christ. Yeah, they I mean, it, it's not so much that they were trying to say, like, it's totally deficient or anything. 
But you have Christians like Origen, for example, who are trying to correct things, trying to just tighten up the language a little bit. But you also have the Jewish uh, retranslations or the Jewish recensions, uh, which are trying to, I don't know, we don't have a lot of them, but they, they exist. And you can imagine what they're trying to do after Christ has come. I mean, draw your own conclusions here, right? Right. I mean, there is an intentional watering down, you know, so... The council I referenced, for example, is going to happen, and this is related to the Talmud. So it's before AD 70, there's a school established in the city of, uh, what is it, um, Yavna. Okay, and then the Mishnah is going to fill in uh, some of this. But, you know, somewhere post-70, there's this council that happens. The Council of Hamnia or Jamnia, depending on how you want to anglicize that. So... This is kind of a foundational moment for the Jews. Uh, This is post-Christianity. So they changed the synagogue liturgy where nobody who believed that Jesus was the Messiah uh, could really pray it uh, because they would kind of anathematize themselves. They closed officially the Jewish canon and adopt what we'll call the Protestant canon or the short canon of the Old Testament. So they exclude the Deuterocanonicals, for example. Uh, They begin compiling the Talmud, starting with the Mishnah here. And they also, like I said, cursed the day the Septuagint was authorized. They thought that it was a source of Christian heresy. They thought it was a flawed translation, in particular because of the virgin birth, which is more clear in the Septuagint. Hmm. We don't talk about that a lot, kind of, you know. You know, and and people say, well, well, maybe you're just, you know, is that really being fair to them? It's like, yeah, they don't believe Jesus is God. They don't believe he's divine. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe he's the savior. This shouldn't surprise you. And so as a result, they would compile manuscripts that would minimize some of this stuff. And it creeps into modern Bible translations because they are basing them on that text. I would argue. Now, I'm not a king. I'm, I'm going to come across sounding like, something of a King James onlyist here. That's not what I'm doing, but it is naive for like when people, for example, they want to bash on the King James onlyist. Okay. That's fine. But they do so by embracing too much sometimes and saying that, well, I'm going to take these later manuscripts that are watering down the Christological elements and then go, but you know, they're still all there. If you squint, because they want to dunk on the King James only. It's like, that's not the way you do that. <laughs> you know, there's a better way, a better way to go about this. And, and, and I'm not concerned with, you know, some kind of perceived academic prestige that goes along with accepting these manuscripts as more authoritative. There, there are cases where the Dead Sea Scrolls correspond with the Septuagint better than the later Hebrew manuscripts. Yeah, there are deviations too, but we can't pretend that that what is essentially a later manuscript, just because it's Hebrew, necessarily approximates the original. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think we do have to be clear here, though. When you say the, the later manuscript, you're talking about the latest uh, Masoretic text, the complete Correct. manuscript, which Correct. doesn't exist until the Middle Ages. Correct. Right. With the pointing and everything, yeah. With the pointing and everything. However... Yeah. The Hebrew text exists before that point. Yes. I'm simply saying that the Septuagint, in some cases, clearly preserves an older Hebrew form 
that gets lost in later versions in some instances. Right. And I'm, I'm not denying that. I'm just... I, I think I think my, my caution here is this. It's kind of like the people who say, with certain modern Bible translations, right, that we're basing them on the quote-unquote oldest manuscripts, which are necessarily the best, rather than the ones that were used by the church. Well, you can do that a little bit with the Masoretic text. And again, I'm not saying that most of the Masoretic text isn't fine and faithful and does correctly preserve the truth. I'm not saying that. But you can fall into the, well, it's Hebrew, it's Jewish, therefore it's closer to the source. And that's not necessarily the case. The translators right. of the Septuagint are Jewish. <laughs> um, right, right. And, and they represent a Judaism that is not tainted by anti-Christianity that will infect you know, later stuff. And, and, and it's kind of like the Hebrew, but it's this idea that anything that's Jewish or Hebrew is somehow closer to what is the real Old Testament. It's just not true. And that's the reason I mentioned this council, because it's the beginning of, of, Tal- of the Talmud, and, you know, Talmudic Judaism comes after Christ, and honestly, in response to Christianity in many ways. Well, which is why I was going to say that especially anything that comes after uh, the time of Christ, you have to automatically be suspect if it's something Jewish. I mean, this is where you get things like Seder meals and stuff like that. Correct. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, those, yeah are, right. those are obviously formulated after the time of Christ. And so that's why they're yeah. so suspect. <laughs> and sometimes in opposition to Christ, sometimes ordered in such a way so as to minimize or outright write out Christ. Right. Right, and so that you know, that's the caution there. Just this whole—it's—it's it's like blowing shofars in church and wearing prayer shawls, or it's like you watch Fiddler on the Roof or something and think that that is ancient Israel, it's and not. it's not the case. And yeah. I and I do follow the line of there's the religion, you know, from Adam on, which is Christianity, <laughs> in essence, and that when they they reject Christ when he comes then they branch off into their own religion. Now, you could argue that they were going that way anyway, but there's fundamentally a breakaway. I mean, Christ is the stone of stumbling. Right, right. And I guess the the thing that I'm just trying to emphasize here, though, is that when you say, you know, we, we have the Septuagint and we can look to it to answer these questions and it's preserving an older Hebrew text, we cannot deny that it is a translation. Oh, correct. God, yeah, yeah. The the original autographs are in Hebrew and Aramaic. Right. Yeah, there's and, no debating that. Nobody right. nobody seriously holds any other position. Well, and I just I just want to make it clear because I right. think sometimes you can hear, oh well, we can't, you know, the, the Masoretic text comes so much later, and but that's why we turn to the Septuagint because the Greek is somehow you know, I don't know. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. You can come off hearing it the wrong way. And that's sure. what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah, absolutely. And we all know that first was Jacobean English, translated to Hebrew, translated to Greek, translated to Latin, translated back. Very simple. Very simple. Straightforward. We've got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. We're talking about the Septuagint. Now, I do want to say one quick word about the council that I referenced, the Jewish council I referenced in the previous segment. I do understand, and I know I'll get comments about this, that modern scholars discredit that council. However, everything purportedly said at that council is pretty much present in the Talmud. So either way, Regardless of what happened, I know some people think that the Old Testament canon was put together during the Hasmonean period, which would be much earlier than what we're talking about, but I don't know. I tend to lean toward it happened. And mostly people believe it because everybody just talked about it as if it happened for a long time. And then everybody's like, oh, well, we don't know. It makes us, it makes things look bad, so maybe not. But every doctrine there is pretty much present. You know, it, we can see the changes in the liturgy that happen. We can see... We can see this stuff. So if you go out there and want to research that, you will bump into modern scholars saying that. But, you know, whatever. They probably don't even believe St. George killed a dragon. That's all you need to know right there. That's right. <laughs> we should do another We should do another dinosaurs episode. Uh, soon. Soon. Just every time I see a fossil, just imagine A, not believing in dragons, you know? It seems like every time they, they come up with a new representation of what they supposedly look like, it begins to look more and more dragon-like. I yeah. mean, well, they realized that nobody, no, no kid is going to think a big chicken is cool, so they had to, they had to backtrack <laughs> from that approach. Um, this episode's all over today. I'm not really sure what to do with it. So, well, I mean, we'll get to la- uh, we'll get to the Vulgate and unicorns today, probably. So soon, Lord willing, soon. Uh, but where do you want to go now, Willie? We're talking um, about the Septuagint. Dog-headed saints. No, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyway, yeah, let's talk about the text itself, uh, kind of the translation philosophy, to put a modern term on that. Right. Is it a, is it a dynamic equivalence or a formal equivalence? Uh, <laughs> and it's like whatever the particular translator felt like. And it really does come down to that, because if you spend any amount of time in the Septuagint, reading it, comparing it, especially with like the Hebrew text as we have it now, you sometimes you'll get a very literal translation, like even to the point of imitating how the Hebrew is itself is structured. Like uh, the, the, the easiest example I can think of is like in Genesis 3, where God says, you know, you will surely die if you eat from the fruit of the tree. Hebrew literally says dying, you will die. Right. It repeats the word in order to drive home emphasis. Right. It sounds really weird to us um, to say it that way because that's not good English. And it sounds really weird in Greek, too. But you'll get cases where it will be translated that way, where they'll repeat the word just like Hebrew does. But other times in the Septuagint, you get a much more much more of a paraphrase, like they just kind of get the general idea of what it was trying to say. And then they put it into what essentially is better Greek. Yeah. So it's kind of neither literal nor right. paraphrase. And that's just translation. Sometimes you have to do that. Right. You know, King James follows, you know, the language of whatever they're translating, depending. But we'll say it's the Hebrew, you know. And sometimes like that, too. Right. Our modern translations don't do that as much. New American Standard probably comes closer to that. ESV does this thing where it'll do that sort of, but then get really paraphrastic sometimes right and in ways that bother me (laughs) like it depends not of literally in greek right it depends not on him that wills nor of him that runs but upon god who has mercy 
which I think makes the point much more clear. And then they turn it into, it depends not upon human will or exertion. I'm like, that's, that's a poetic way. Like you, you, you know, you you took it, you actually made it less poetic by, by being poetic in your translation. So right, that moment when this episode turns into an election episode, right. We're all over the place. So as all episodes will. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and we've we've done the Bible buying episode. We'll do the Great Translation episode one day too. But we talked a bit about it there, right? But I mean, so that's that is basically what you have in the Septuagint. And some books are much more literal, like the Book of Ruth, for example, is almost word for word to the Hebrew. But then there's other books which are much more paraphrase. The, the prophets come to mind or the Psalms, especially where they substitute one word for another. So you can't really say that the Septuagint is one way or the other. It just is. Right. It just is what it is. I think yeah. that's the best way of saying it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it, again, foundational and important. Now, what happens when you begin to compare the Septuagint to the Masoretic text? And tell the folks at home, we've been, we've been saying Masoretic a lot. Tell the folks at home what that means. Masoretic text refers to the version of the Hebrew Old Testament, which we have from the Masoretes. And they were a group of Jewish scholars in the Middle Ages, so you know, around the year 1000 uh, AD, who were trying to figure out, you know, basically trying to come up with the best Hebrew text that they could, at least in their own minds. And they also added a system of uh, vowels, of uh, points, into the text, yeah. which were not there before. If I'm not mistaken, the first complete, you know, quote-unquote Masoretic text is going to be the Leningrad Codex, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And I'm trying, I don't remember the exact year, but it's a thousand something. It's like a thousand eight or something. Yeah. Or th- yeah, something like that. thousand ten. And so what we have currently as a complete old Hebrew Testament dates from the Middle Ages. Now, there are fragments all the way back to the time of Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we cannot deny that. Yeah. My thing, I'm not trying to cast doubt on the Hebrew manuscripts or the idea of of studying Hebrew. This is, this is, I know you're defensive because you took more Hebrew than me. Um, (laughs) But I have a degree in Greek. <laughs> Is that so, how we're going to play this? That's okay. how we're going to play it. I spent too much time in Greek uh, in my life, pre-sim, to, uh, to deal with your shenanigans. <laughs> no, it, it, and it, it really, my point being that the, the unpointed, the no vowels text exists long before. I mean, you see it like with the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? which you mentioned earlier, you know, which date all the way back to, I can't remember what they date back to, not quite the time of Christ, but right before, right after it, isn't it? Yeah. They they deposited about then. Yeah. And you know, the story of the dude just like in a cave stumbling upon some, some scrolls still always makes me like, I don't know if this is true. (laughs) I believe believe the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it's a little too, you know, I threw a rock in a cave and... Out came this scroll. <laughs> right. But... It's not really how it happened, folks, but kind of. It's kind of how they portray it. <laughs> but when we compare 
the Septuagint, or at least what we you know what we're calling the Septuagint, since the version that we most commonly call the Septuagint, let's put it that way, with the Masoretic text, with this medieval Hebrew text, there are differences between them. And sometimes those differences are very small, like a, a phrase will get inserted here or there, you know, like they'll add another part of a sentence into it, or they'll add a little bit more information. Sometimes they'll leave one of these phrases out. So, I mean, a very small kind of difference in some cases, some of which is just a result of paraphrasing, right? Because you don't always use the exact wording when you paraphrase something. But some of these differences are not so easy to deal with. Sometimes you have entire verses inserted into the text, uh, notably sure. in places like Joshua, where you get like, you know, four more verses added here or there, right. or, you know, even where, you know, where Joshua was buried and what was buried with him. But of course, the big question when people are dealing with the Septuagint is, is uh, the major prophets, mm -hmm. which the Hebrew text as we have it is substantially longer than the Septuagint in that case. Like almost as much as a third, if I remember right, in some cases. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do we do with that, Willie? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think typically today what you're going to find are, are modern scholars are going to go, well, you go back to the Hebrew, which is the oldest, and you let that correct it. Now, you could also say that the Septuagint represents truth that was lost, but the, but the problem is where it might seem contradictory. Sure. And that's the bigger issue. I mean, I, I'm fine with saying, hey, these variant readings are actual scripture. I mean, I do that in modern translation in certain, in certain right. verses, right? So, I mean, you, you have to deal with it. And it's like you said, that's why you have to understand the Septuagint as a translation. Uh, and then just kind of deal with it almost on a case-by-case -case basis with each of these. Right. How, how do you deal with it? I mean, other than just throwing the Septuagint away, as you do. <laughs> I just just <laughs> don't need any Greek. I mean, I, I do, th and again, I want to go back. I do think the Septuagint preserves things lost by the Masoretic text in some cases. And I think that's a very good position to hold, especially when you're dealing with like the very small changes. Like, you know, the, the phrases which are inserted here or omitted there. You know, I do think in that case, what we have is the preservation of something which, for whatever reason, fell out of the Hebrew text. I think that's fair. The one that's more difficult is the major differences, like the, the different versions of Jeremiah. Judges. And, yeah. Or judges or something like that. What do we do in that case? That's where it gets tricky. And... I've heard some say, well, maybe there was a shorter version, which was current at the time. Like there was two, two, two versions of Jeremiah, for example. Um, that'd be one way to deal with it. I don't know. How, how would you, how would you approach it, Willie? I, I suppose it's just not that big of a deal for me. <laughs> you know, even though, I mean, I, I mean, I suppose it should be. You just kind of pick up a critical edition of the Septuagint and go with whatever it has in it. <laughs> <laughs> that moment when you're like, I'll, I'll read my critical Septuagint, but give me the Byzantine yeah. text for the New Testament. But go on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, 
no, I mean, okay, so this is where you understand if the legend of the 70 is true, it right. always refers to the Pentateuch. So that right. then you have the rest of the Septuagint being developed later. So you can still have your legend, believe it, <laughs> but what do you do with this? It just, it, I mean, it, it just clearly shows that there were two, at least two schools of thoughts and two schools of document gathering that made right. the Septuagint. And that's all I can do with it. That it's just a, it's just kind of a composite document to begin with, is what you're saying. Yes, but all translations are composite documents, except for like the Vulgate and one, and or the Beck Bible. You know, anything with one translator wouldn't be a composite. But nearly every major Bible translation is a is a composite because it's coming from different translators. Right. But to be fair, with even like with every other, virtually almost every other translation, you have it being done within a relatively short period of time. Right. Whereas the Septuagint is over a couple hundred years. A couple hundred years. And it's also related to questions of canonicity. Right. And things like that. So that's how you can end up with two really greatly varying texts. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes canonicity doesn't only refer to a book. It will refer to just a part of a book. Or an extra psalm. Or whatever. Right. And so you've got that going. So I, I think a lot of people see Bible translation or even the history of the Bible and the history of the canon as this kind of very cut and dry thing. And it's just not. Because canon and translation are related more than what we think, especially as history goes on and the canons are more firmly established. The canon is a much more fluid thing um, in the early church. That's a fact. Right. Now, the short can, the Protestant canon is always accepted by everybody at minimum. You know what I mean? Right, right. There's there's no one who says that I reject this canon entirely. Yeah, nobody's rejecting Romans or Luke or something like that. Right. Um, But the canon has been fluid. I don't think you're ever free, respectfully, like let's let's make this as Lutherans, to reject Hebrews. I don't think you're free to do that. Even though you can say the Book of Concord doesn't have a, a, a set canon, that doesn't mean you get to reduce it down to the four books that you like. That's not what that's meant right. to imply. You know, without naming names, but but so all this is tied up. And just to say that the question of of, of that is, you know, it, the canon is coming together in history, and we we need to be able to accept that. But we we have to also make it very clear that we still have the scriptures, and that's what I fear when people start digging into this. You know, guys like Bart Ehrman will get their hooks in them. And the differences between the manuscripts, by and large, are minuscule. However, in like a translation like the Septuagint, you do have a few notable major differences. But again, as you've pointed out and wanted us to make very clear, it is a translation. Right. But even right. with those major differences, it's still 95% consistent. Right. And, and that's why I say when I, when I want to emphasize... You know, the, the small differences, especially like a difference of a phrase here or there. I'm not talking like an entire verse drops out, although it does in some cases. But most of the time we are dealing with just very small things that really don't change the meaning of the text. Yes. You know, yeah. Often it's just a bit more information or something that is implied in the Hebrew that gets made explicit in the Greek or, you know, something like that. That that's really what most of these small differences are doing between sure. the Septuagint. So, 
yeah, I, I just, I don't believe that the Bible has ever been lost in a true Absolutely way. Not. No. It's been obscured by not being put in the vernacular or whatever other reason, but it has never been truly lost. And I think that's, that's an important thing. The church has held on to the scriptures and the Holy Spirit has preserved them. I am a preservationist, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me let me ask the, the big question and the one that's kind of been hanging out here already. What do we do with the deuterocanonical books of the Septuagint? How do we approach those, especially as Lutherans? Um, <laughs> I'm talking, you know, Tobit, Maccabees, yeah. you know. Well, the fact is, some of them are quoted in your confessions. <laughs> so there you go. And it, yeah, so you've got whole books, but you've got editions, right? You've got right. Baruch, editions to Daniel, Esther, whatever. First, second, Maccabees, wisdom, so on and so forth. All right, let me answer it this way. There is such a lack of undisputed uh, canon biblical knowledge out there that our people today should be concentrating on those things. The Deuterocanonical books, however, apocryphal, whatever, Deuterocanonical, we'll say that, are still good to be read. They are recommended by our fathers to read. They're important for understanding the historical context of the New Testament as well. Right. So they should be read. However, because of the state that we live in, as in the absolute state, we should be concentrating on other books right now. That would be my pastoral advice. That if you've not read, I don't know, 1 Corinthians, don't pick up 1 Maccabees first, before that. <laughs> that would be my counsel. Fair enough. Fair not enough. that those two books are really related. It's just, right, you know, right. off the top of my head. Well, and, and just to make absolutely clear, you know, because I'm sure some of our listeners might be asking, well, where do they come from in the first place? You know, they they were books which were added, but were never originally in Hebrew. And that's why we as Lutherans say that they're not part of the canon because they are clearly late additions. You're disagreeing with me, Willie. Why? No, I mean, yeah, no, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm, yeah, that is the Lutheran one, but I mean, okay, you, you got to go back to Jerome and he's translating 73 books. All right. Into right. the Vulgate. There are local synods that seem to affirm these earlier on. So Council of Rome, 382, right? Damasus, Pope Damasus. They've got 46 books in the Old Testament, all right? And 27 books in the New. Right. Um, now, granted, yeah, you don't get the first, the so-called first canon, quote-unquote, which is the longer canon, at a universal council until the Council of Trent which is a Roman Catholic council after the Reformation, which we would not accept. But right. yeah, yeah, I th that's one of the things is those books weren't written in Hebrew, but objectively they are accepted by some significant local councils in the uh, 300s, 400s. I mean, that I, you know. Yeah, but yeah, but I mean, but, but we're dealing with an issue of, you know, were they... Are they inspired in the same way that the no, canon I'm not saying is I'm not saying that, but it is a fact that certain early church fathers would have said they were. Right. But that's not a decisive argument in itself. 
No, but neither is it's not written in Hebrew. Touche. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Um, yeah, it's more than just a linguistic argument, though. They're also going to say there are historical errors in in the Deuterocanonical books. Right. The fuzzier one is they'll say there are doctrinal errors. And you don't want to say it that way. What you want to say is they contradict other books of the Bible. Right, right. That would be the, the better way to make that argument. Because when you say it's got false doctrine, it sounds like, well, I don't agree with what they say, so it's not true. But if you can say that they don't agree with the other uh, accepted books, then that should cast a little bit of doubt on them. So you're saying that we should approach it as because they do contradict the other books, that's the best reason to say this is why we don't accept them. Perhaps. But also understand that they are still printed in even Protestant Bibles in the modern era. Right. Uh, you know, and, and that they are still used liturgically. So that doesn't mean that there isn't truth in them or something like that. They're not poisonous in that way, in the way reading like a Gospel of Thomas would be or something like that. Sure. Right. You just have right. To- right. Right. At what, at what point are you going to start being like, you know, maybe maybe Tobit was onto something with his prayers? Hey, I mean, where's the lie though? <laughs> well, all right, we got to take our next break. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken right after this. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi, and we're talking about the Septuagint. Well, it's been a lively episode, a fun episode. Now we come to our third segment, and this is where the Septuagint really is most significant. This is why the Septuagint is so important, because of its usage in the New Testament. Zelwyn, talk a little bit about that. The, the best way to put it is that the New Testament frequently quotes the Septuagint when referring to the Old Testament. I will not say that it always does it because it clearly does not. I mean, if you compare, especially like in Matthew, for example, some of the quotations of the Old Testament, sometimes it's very clearly just a new translation from Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever it was for him. Or it is just a paraphrase so that it really doesn't match or eat, match any of them. But many times, in the New Testament, they are quoting the Septuagint. And Jesus sometimes will even speak the very words of the Septuagint down to like even the smallest of words. Right. And so we can't just ignore the Septuagint and say, oh, well, that's just something old that we can, you know, something that we don't use anymore because the New Testament uses it frequently. Yeah. So is that is that a fair enough summary for that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But just to know that it is in their minds. <laughs> and so at least parts of it are inspired. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I suppose that comes down to the question of, you know, what were the apostles doing when they quoted the Old Testament? Do they have to quote the Old Testament in exactly the same words as, you know, the way that we expect quotations to be? Like, if you if you get one word wrong, you're not doing it right. right. Kind of a and thing. they clearly don't do that. They clearly do not do that. <laughs> yes. In fact, it is rare, even when they're quoting from the Septuagint, when they do that. Most yeah. of the time, it's most of the words. Right. You know, or or do we recognize that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they can use these things for their purposes, for their meaning, and it's still scripture, right? Yeah. And I mean, and this is just how things work, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> yeah, we, we're just so technical because we're all kind of legalists. Right. <laughs> oh, you didn't enunciate this word right, so clearly you don't know what you're doing, that sort of thing. And it's, yeah, it's not how the ancient world did it. It's not how Jesus did it. It's not how Jesus did it. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's too good for you. <laughs> it's better than you. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's better than you deserve. So Exactly. But I mean, so what do, what do we do then with the Septuagint of the New Testament? How would you approach it, Willie? Just take it for what it is. It is it is the predominant translation because of the language that it's in, because of its historic significance. It is, and I would argue that it is providential. It's it, the, for the same reason that it's providential that the New Testament is inspired in Greek, sure. because it's it's the common language of the day. It's going to reach people faster. It's going to reach more people. That that cannot be by accident. Right. I don't believe it's by accident. Not for a second. I think I think it's worth pointing out here too, though, that the New Testament being inspired in Greek is, I mean, it's in a kind of its own category because it is not a translation, even if it is influenced. Correct. Yeah, it is not. Yes, a translation in the same way that the Septuagint is. A translation. Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't agree with me on the Septuagint, I think you, I think most Christians could agree with me on the Greek of the New Testament because it is inspired in that language. Yes. Yes. And at that time. Right, and I don't believe it. It's not just an accident of history either. Right, and I, that's and that's the only reason I bring that up is because you know the the New Testament being composed in Greek, not translated into Greek, but composed in Greek, and quoting the Septuagint. I does, I mean, it does say something about the value of the Septuagint. Yeah, even for us today. Right. Correct. Well, now I know you've been chomping at the bit to talk a little bit more about following the Hebrew Old Testament. And that's fine. <laughs> I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Let's talk about Jerome. Yeah, my boy here. The reason why, because I know all this discussion basically comes down to, well, if this is what the Septuagint is, if this is what the New Testament used, you know, and all these kind of questions, why don't we, especially as Lutherans, use it today or use a translation of the Septuagint today? And, you know, why do we follow the Hebrew, basically? And the, the easiest answer to that question is because of the influence of one man, St. Jerome, who lived, of course, you know, being born roughly 342, lived until, you know, until he died in 420. Um, but his influence on the Bible in the Western church is almost without parallel. I mean, he's on, he's on a level even above Luther in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. Because of, of what he has done for our understanding of the Bible. And of course, what Jerome did, 
uh, when dealing with controversies in his day and also when dealing with the Jews of his day was he decided that he needed to translate from the Hebrew as he had it then into Latin in order to basically dunk on the Jews. Yeah, and and look, it's it's noble. It's an apologetic thing because what the Jews are saying is the Septuagint is too Christological. It's been corrupted. I mean, they're not going to say it that way, but they're saying, well, they essentially are saying that it's been corrupted to, toward a Christian bias or whatever. Right. Uh, or, yeah. or because it's so inaccurate, the Christians are able to claim that it's agreeing with them or whatever. Right. Um, but he's going to show, no, even if I go back to your text, Christ is still the Messiah. Right. Right. And Jerome, of course, was actually very, very learned in Hebrew. He knew it very, very well. It's something that he began to pick up, learning it from converts, if I remember correctly, like Jews who had become Christians. And he learned Hebrew from them during his time as a hermit out in Syria and also uh, during his time uh, at a monastery in Bethlehem. And so, I mean, he becomes very, very proficient in the language in a way that no other scholar had before him or no other Christian had before him, Mm -hmm. Uh, even Origen. I mean, he was better than Origen at Hebrew by far. Yeah, and so. you know, Hebrew is a tricky one because if when you get up into the Reformation era translations, it's Hebrew that gives the translators the most trouble because mm-hmm. it falls it falls out of favor even again. Right, right. <laughs> but he becomes he becomes very proficient at it, and he begins to undertake what we now know as the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the entire Bible. Although with the New Testament, it was more of a revision than a new translation, but that's kind of a, that's neither here nor there. But throughout most of his life, he goes through the work of translating the Old Testament into Latin. And that translation has such an influence on the Western church that, I mean, we're still being influenced by it today. Yeah. I mean, the King James was influenced by it. Luther was influenced by it. I mean, it is it is the translation of Western Christianity. And because Jerome used the Hebrew Old Testament and followed, well, in, for the most part, you know, that, that is why we continue to do that today. Yeah. Even, as, even as Protestants. Yeah. And so should we talk about the Vulgate for a little bit? Sure. What do you want to talk about? You know, it's perceived rather negatively uh, for Protestant reasons, and and some of them good. But you know, let's let's talk about the historical aversion to it before we talk about translation issues. Okay. It it became an issue when it became the official version of the Bible for the Western Church, and people began to not speak Latin, so then people right. couldn't understand it. Right. So that's kind of the issue at the time of the Reformation. Like it's not, we're not saying the Vulgate is evil right. per se, but the issue was <laughs> we need a Bible in the, in the common tongue, our own Vulgate, Vulgate, if you will. Uh, but, but uh, also, yeah, there are some interesting um, uh, translation things that kind of happen and that may or may not have had a negative influence on the church, depending upon your theological persuasion. Do you want to, can we talk the, the, the translation philosophy first before we talk about its its oddities? Is mm-hmm. that fair? That's fine. Okay. 
as far as the the Bulgit, as you like to say, goes, as far as the translation of, that Jerome used, I would call it somewhere, again, very much like the Septuagint. In some cases, very literal, but some cases more of a paraphrase. Uh, Jerome himself, being very well-educated, especially in rhetoric, had a great love of variety in his words. And so he will very often, you know, because Hebrew tends to repeat itself, like again and again and again kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Jerome would kind of vary his language so that he wouldn't repeat because he knew that wasn't good Latin. So you get a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he will, just like the Septuagint, he will sometimes, re- you know, borrow the way that Hebrew says something to reproduce it in Latin. And in some cases, he's actually borrowing from the Septuagint, which I think is interesting. But but basically, he ends up with a translation which is very faithful to its Hebrew original and becomes the language uh, of the Old Testament for the Western Church. And so I think it is something that we would do well to pay attention to, even if we as, you know, Protestants would rightly say that we should not, you know, insist on it, even when nobody else can understand it, which was the problem at the time of the Reformation. Yeah. I mean, it's called the Vulgate, or Vulgate, whatever, because it means common, right? This was the language of the people. This was something that the average Christian, Latin-speaking Christian could understand in Jerome's time. And in fact, for that reason, I wouldn't call it like, you know, high, highly polished Latin. It is a very down-to-earth, very straightforward kind of translation that even if you're learning Latin today, it's very easy to understand. Mm-hmm. So, is that fair? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. And, that, and, I, and I really think that we should, we should appreciate it for what it is, you know, and, 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 jo- and Jerome's efforts there. I also, I also love... When you're reading Jerome, Jerome has this habit of really ramping up his language. Like if the Hebrew says that, it's, you know, he killed somebody, Jerome is going to say something like he killed him with undying malice or something like that. You know, he really just ramps up his language uh, for whatever reason. <laughs> and I'm not really sure why, but it's, it's, it's entertaining to read. There's also some some translation issues we might take with the Vulgate. And what would be a couple of those? Probably the most famous one would be uh, in Genesis 3, where it, Jerome clearly says that she will crush the head of the serpent. <laughs> Translating it as a, a woman who will, uh, who will do this, which, of course, Roman Catholics have interpreted to mean that Mary will be the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, that would be one, for example. Uh, my favorite is Moses horns. Um, so if you look at Michelangelo's Moses sculpture, Moses is horned. That's because rays or whatever, you know, the glowing of his face is translated as horns in the Latin. And there's there's a <laughs> kind of a deeper story on that, you know, because it, it pops up other places. But in large part because of the Vulgate, almost exclusively for Michelangelo, because the Vulgate says Moses has horns. That's why you see statues of Moses with, with two horns. Right. And to be fair, if I'm not mistaken, the Hebrew word for ray can also be the Hebrew word for horn. So we yeah, don't want to... Yeah, very similar, yeah. So you know, we, uh, we don't want to be too hard on Jerome. Right. 
let's see, uh, unicorns, but I'm fine with that. Yeah, we're, we're, we are a unicorn respecting podcast. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's completely justified based upon what he's translating. Right. One of the big ones, of course, that would become a major sticking point in the Reformation is uh, in the Gospels where he translates repent as do penance. Mm. And that is something that will become a major debate among the Reformers. And that's because of the Vulgate. So, you know, there are, I mean, many of these difficulties which we have stem from this translation. It, as important as it is. And in right. some sense, you know, you see some of the fights of the Reformation happening because of it. Exactly. Yeah. And so it sounds like we're contradicting ourselves from five minutes ago, right. but we're not, you know, we never said that, the, that it was perfect or something like that. It's just that, you know, don't just completely throw it away or pretend like it doesn't matter or that it's 100% corrupted or something like that. Right. Right. Because it influences even modern English translations that you all use. Right. Well, even even if all it's doing is influencing through the King James, the King James's influence on modern translations is enormous. Yes. And so even if it's just an indirect, which it isn't, because there's also direct influences, that, that influence is there and that cannot be denied. Correct. And so there you go. So the Eastern Orthodox churches are still going to be largely influenced by the Septuagint in a way similar to the way the Vulgate is influencing the Western church. Now, I'd argue that because of the Reformation, the Vulgate only really influences Rome at this point. Sure. In in, in a large way. Protestants have their own translations, their own issues, but none of them really related to the Septuagint per se. Now we have to do a Texas Receptus episode, you realize. <laughs> I thought this was. <laughs> right. Every episode is, unofficially. <laughs> but yeah, but either of these ancient translations, the Vulgate or the Septuagint, neither should be should be neglected. I think the Septuagint is particularly important as we study uh, the early church and as we study the scriptures in general. But even the Orthodox, if they're honest, they would admit that, yeah, there's no one Septuagint. However, the Septuagint is still foundational to their churches. Right. You know, in whatever form that it takes. Well, sometimes I wonder if they don't approach the Septuagint in a similar way to kind of the King James onlyists, right? That God has somehow lifted up the Greek in a way that supersedes even sure. the Hebrew. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we need to get into that debate sometime. But, I mean, the value of the Septuagint cannot be overstated. And I think we, as, you know, as Christians in general, would do well to pay attention to it, even if it's only in translation. And there are translations of the Septuagint that do exist. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can check them out for yourself. Um, I'm trying to think, the, the most common one, I think, of is what is it called the new english translation of the septuagint mm-hmm. the nets bible yeah if I remember then, correctly. yeah and then there's some public domain stuff floating out there too if i'm not mistaken if you can't if you can't read the greek right so so there are ways that we can delve into the septuagint and deal with it on its own terms um and you know we could even compare it in that way but at any rate it is an important witness 
for the church and for the Old Testament for that matter. And for that reason, we would do well to study it, you know, as pastors and even as, as laymen in translation. I mean, it, it is it is just that important for the history of the church. Right. Well, any final words before we wrap up this episode? At what point are we going to get into an actual fist fight over these questions, though, Willie? Listen, if I know it's going to get you riled up, I'll just take the opposite position at any point <laughs> in time. It's, it's too much fun. The even-keeled Norwegian, we can get him fired up. It'll be great. Get, get the boat rocking, and, and it'll be a roaring good time. Right. I don't know. Well, this... Can we get you rocking at the same way, though? Oh, it's easy to get me riled up. You know me. <laughs> so, well, thank you all for listening. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless. If the version of the 70 translators is pure and has remained as it was rendered by them into Greek, you have urged me on superfluously, Micromatius, most holy and most learned of bishops, that I translated the Hebrew scrolls into Latin words. For what has formerly won the ears of men and strengthened the faith of those being born to the church was indeed proper to be approved by our silence. Now, in fact, when different versions are held by a variety of regions, and this genuine and ancient translation is corrupted and violated, you have considered our opinion, either to judge which of the many is the true one, or to put together new work with old work, and shutting off to the Jews, as it is said, a horn to pierce the eyes. St. Jerome's Preface to the Book of Chronicles.